It's one of the most recognized monuments in the United States. It's described as majestic, stunning, spectacular, amazing, breathtaking, fascinating, a gleaming gem, an architectural marvel. It can only be the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. The striking stainless steel monument, which stands on the banks of the Mississippi River, has many stories to tell. From the start of a city that will become one of the largest cities in the United States, and a fur trading industry that inspired many to go west, young man, go west. From trade to food to music, the city has been a melting pot for cultural expressions and the seat of historical events. It's no wonder it has been chosen the spot for humanity since the Native American mound builders as early as AD 700. The stories on this podcast are from individuals who have firsthand experience to share and also paint a picture of how this magnificent monument came to be built and how it continues to stand tall today and into the future as an iconic American landmark. It's quarter miles travel where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own from one of a kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be It's Anita, host of Quarter Mouse Travel, and I'm ready to take you on an adventure based on the Missouri State Quarter. Featured on the quarter is the Gateway Arch and Lewis and Clark sailing down the Mississippi River. The Gateway Arch has a long list of stories, from its beginning all the way to today, as the beautiful silver ribbon of metal gracing the Mississippi River. That history does include Lewis and Clark and their expedition to explore the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase. And we'll cover that part of the Missouri State Quarter on another episode. Today, we're all about that Gateway Arch. But the city that we know as St. Louis extends back to AD 700 through AD 1300, when the Native Americans lived in a thriving city of over 20,000 called Chihokia. The area was chosen because of its location and access to surrounding areas. Chihokia was a city of mounds, a city of mound builders. Today at Chihokia Mound State Historic Site and Interpretive Center in Illinois, you can visit the remaining mounds that are left after Europeans settled the area. The history of this one spot where the Gateway Arch stands has great historical significance, but how did it become to be? Why an arch? Why call it a gateway? I ask these and many more questions of my guests. And here are the stories. One of a resident who watched it from start to finish be built. A woman who made St. Louis her home for over 20 years. And a story about the arch cannot be told without the first-hand narratives of those who actually built it. So here are the stories of the Gateway Arch. Valerie Battle Kinzel moved to St. Louis 20 years ago. Her love for the city has kept her here and inspired her to write about the history, the people, and events of the city. Her book called What's With St. Louis, The Quirks, Personalities, and Charm of the Gateway City inspired me to reach out to her 
With a book with that name, I had to hear her story. Here Valerie shares with me what made St. Louis become such a grand trading post along the Mississippi. Well, St. Louis was founded as a fur trading village in 1764. There were some French settlers that came up the Mississippi River from New Orleans, and they were looking for a place to uh, buy, sell, trade furs. Um, there was starting to be a market in Europe and other places, and um, they settled on this spot. The Mississippi, of course, ran just right sort of central to the United States. It, uh, it just was like the right place, and so they picked this. They did settle the fur trading village here. They started out with three north-south and three east-west streets. They plotted it out right along the riverfront, and it grew. And as technology, I guess, at that time got better, there were more flatboats, there was more trade going on. So the Mississippi was really sort of like a super highway at that time. And so it was very conveniently located. Plus the Mississippi is just a few miles from the mouth of the Illinois River and the Missouri River. So a confluence of lots of different rivers helped with trading aspects. So as the city grew and expanded and there were people coming here from the east and then uh, with Thomas Jefferson having the um, Louisiana Purchase and that added so many millions of acres to what was part of the United States. Lewis and Clark, they were sent to explore some up the river and to see what exactly was in all this territory that was suddenly part of the United States. St. Louis really became a jumping off point. Um, at that time, there were basically people who lived in the western half of the United States were Native Americans. Suddenly there's this influx of people coming. They needed supplies. They were coming from the east and there was really not a big metropolis or a big city beyond St. Louis. And so as a result, things like dry goods stores built up, um, production of clothing, footwear from some of the furs and the skins and things that have been traded. So it just, the city grew organically. And then when the gold rush era came in the mid 1800s, this was truly the place where people came, the last stop, the gateway to the West, the last place to get food or clothing or supplies or feed for your animals that were making the trip with you because you really didn't know when would be your next opportunity to get things that you needed for you and your family. Long before St. Louis became a fur trading city, there was the city of mounds. So I asked Valerie what happened to all of the mounds that were part of the Chokia city. At the time, the topography of St. Louis, what is now downtown St. Louis, had more than two dozen mounds. And the riverboat captains nicknamed, when they came and saw the area, they could see the mounds, they nicknamed it Mound City. Well, as progress happened and the city started to grow, these mounds were indiscriminately leveled and a lot of the dirt was used as the railroads came and were built in the 1870s and forward from there. Jim Merkel, a St. Louis native and author of the book, The Making of an Icon, 
the dreamers, the schemers, and the hard hats who built the Gateway Art. Jim also shares what happened to Cahokia and the Mound City. About 10 miles to the east of the Mississippi from St. Louis, uh, there was a, a town they called Cahokia, which was a huge settlement for hundreds of years. And then it, uh, before Columbus came, it, it kind of died, but it was, uh, you know, I think they said that it was as big as uh, London was at the time, but there was a huge, it used to be called the Mound City because there was all these mounds and they were removed and there were only one mound left. And they, and some white people, some, they built a house on it. And I remember doing an article about it and going in the house, which was on right on top of the, of the hill. And finally, it was given to a uh, an Indian tribe, I think it was the Osage, to uh, build back, uh, to you know get rid of it and kind of like uh, do what they should have. But it's very sad that I think there were like 40 different mounds and now there's just one on the west side. Jim comes in now to tell us a bit about the 1800s and what St. Louis was like during that period of time when it was really growing into a very large city and more like the city that we know today. In the late 1800s and during the time of the 1904 World's Fair, it was the fourth biggest city in the country. Some people were even talking about, let's make it on the center, let's make it the capital. Of course that happened and we have to have to mention it was a wonderful place as long as you were white. Uh, what I think what we're trying to do now is we're trying to uh, make it a wonderful place for everybody. Mm -hmm. And we got a little stumbling along the way, but I think we're going to get there. We know that the French had made their way to the St. Louis area, but who were all of the people that were coming to St. Louis after the Louisiana Purchase? We know that Lewis and Clark had made their expedition, and it's becoming more well known that St. Louis was the place to be. The eclectic group of people that were making their way there, where were they all coming from? It was becoming also known all around the world that St. Louis was a place to be. So I asked Valerie to tell us a little bit about who these people were and where were they coming from. So not only the French were here, but then there was a huge influx of Germans. Uh, there was a book put out by a guy named but Gottfried Duden. He had visited here from Germany. He came to the St. Louis area and wrote letters back to Germany and said this land was much like what German topography was like and literally thousands of Germans began coming to St. Louis. There was some oppression there and they thought, okay, we're going to make a new start in the United States. And this sounds like a great place. We'll be welcomed. And so there were literally tens of thousands of Germans settled here. And then people from Italy came here. Brick making became a huge, huge operation in South St. Louis, there was a certain kind of clay. So if you come to St. Louis, you look around, there are still so many old warehouses, old buildings, old houses with lots and lots of brickwork. That brick was all made here in St. Louis. And eventually it was sent all over the country and all over the world because it was such a, a strong fire baked brick. It was very sturdy and durable and so has lasted 100 plus years in many cases. But wait, I don't want to jump too far ahead. Jim's family came over from Germany and was one of the many families looking for success in St. Louis. Jim continues his sense of pride and love for the city, just as his family who came over and started a business. My uh, 
great-great-grandfather on my dad's side. He came from Germany. He made pianos in uh, New York, and then he came out with his family in 1858, and he made pianos until he died in 85. Uh, my brother is the fifth generation of piano tuners or piano people in the family, and I'm the I'm a black sheep. I turned out to be a writer, uh, but I think they forgive me. Uh, I went away for 16 years, and then I came back with my wife and got to working for local papers. I, uh, if I hadn't uh, come back, I would have died. Uh, St. Louis is such an easy place to live. Wow, that's quite a testament there that Jim has for the city of St. Louis. But he did share with me that a lot of his feelings about St. Louis are based on the people and the communities that they live in. Now, I would like to say that it's because the people are known as being adventurous, trailblazers, people who sought to make a better life for themselves and understood the importance of community. Valerie and I talk about some of the people who have been part of the communities and neighborhoods throughout the years here in St. Louis. Culturally, lots of people came from New Orleans on the riverboats. There were colorful people that came here. At one time, prostitution was even legal in St. Louis. Uh, it, it had its body areas. Of course, it had music, ragtime. Uh, Scott Joplin lived here in what was downtown St. Louis. You know, wrote the Maple Leaf Rag, many, many things. And the Dred Scott decision, that that's huge. Talking about the arch, the arch is part of the Gateway Arch National Park. Also, just to the west of the arch is what St. Louisans call the old courthouse. That is where Dred and Harriet Scott were enslaved individuals. They were taken to Illinois, which was a free state, and to Wisconsin. And Missouri at that time had a stipulation that once you became free, in other words, once you were taken to states where freedom was possible for people of color, when you came back to Missouri, you would once free, always free. Well, the Scots came back to Missouri came back to St. Louis and found that that was not the case. So they sued twice in the old courthouse to maintain their freedom. The court case ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, it was ruled against them, but this decision is said to have had a major impact on the outbreak of the Civil War four years later because of the unfairness and the injustice of that. So there's there are lots of things. There were lots of authors like uh, Sarah Teasdale and Mark Twain spent a lot of time in St. Louis and Tennessee Williams, the famous playwright. Um, it just it goes on and on. We actually have a walk of fame down in part of the city called University City. And it lists and has emblems set in the sidewalk for literally hundreds of influential people who came from St. Louis. Not only did St. Louis have a diverse group of people living there, also their trade and industry reflected that diversity too. Valerie recently published a book called Ready to Wear, all about the footwear and garment industry in St. Louis. And that industry grew because of the gateway status of St. Louis. All of the trading between furs, animal skins, all of those created an industry that also made St. Louis known for their ready to wear. And many people don't realize that we were second to only New York for many, many decades. And again, the, the footwear production came as a result of the hides coming through St. Louis, the Mississippi River, the riverboats, and then the trains. 
and literally millions of pairs of shoes were manufactured in St. Louis boots and shoes. Um, three companies in St. Louis supplied all the military boots and shoes for both World War I and World War II American servicemen. Plus a lot of the military clothing was made here. If you're familiar with the junior clothing size for you know, teenage girls, that was a, a thing that started in St. Louis because younger girls, high school, college age, you know, 20 somethings, they were tired of wearing the same clothes that their mothers and grandmothers wore. There were some students at Wash U, some design students that came up with these designs and they just were a hit instantly. So there is still a junior market today. If you go in any store, you know, there'll be junior clothing uh, for, you know, the, the younger girls. As times change, so do cities change. With the introduction of the railway, there was less opportunity for business and commerce to grow along the riverfront. Railways meant goods, services, and people could be moved more inland and growth would follow. The cityscape of St. Louis began to change. The area around the river, which was once booming with interchange and activity, was becoming deserted and becoming more of an eyesore. The change was the beginning of what would bring the Gateway Arch to the very spot where the city began and the place that would honor the westward migration. The whole area was tied to the river, so there were people, there was, there was activity around the 1870s or 1880s. St. Louis became more of a, of a town for trains and there was really no reason for, for things to be close to the water. And so people moved away and the area went into serious decline. And it was frankly an eyesore. People thought that that's not good when you're the uh, fourth largest city uh, in the country, you wanna attract people. They just started thinking and thinking and thinking for decades. In 1933, there was a mover and a shaker, a good guy. Uh, lawyer uh, by the name of Luther Ely Smith, who came up with the idea of having a uh, memorial to Thomas Jefferson, and he said, "Let's let's do this." He went to the mayor. It was a recently elected Democratic, very on fire uh, guy named uh, Bernard uh, Dickman, and he said, "Let's have a memorial." to uh, Thomas Jefferson because he was the person who started the uh, exploration through Lewis and Clark. Uh, and also, by the way, we could get some, some money for the depression. And so they, he got on board and he really was a pusher, any pusher, any pusher. Not only locally was the value and the importance of St. Louis being recognized, but also nationally. The president also was getting involved and in saying how important it would be for St. Louis to be recognized in some way or another for its accomplishments and its importance in the U.S. Valerie tells us more about that. President Franklin Roosevelt in about 1938 that decided that uh, St. Louis place in history was really significant enough that it deserved to have some kind of monument. The, the powers that be in St. Louis, the, the mayor, the council people, they were on this instantly. And so there were no set plans at that time, just 
President Roosevelt said this is something he wanted to do. So the city fathers raised all the buildings on 40 blocks of land in what had originally been the original founding area, the founding part of St. Louis down by the river. Just completely tore down all the buildings. Um, many of the buildings had the, the fanciful brickwork. Um, they had iron, cast iron stores, fronts and grill work, much like you would find in New Orleans. And um, it, there was no thought given to historical significance for some of these buildings that had been around since the early fur trade days, everything was raised. And so there, I have seen a picture taken in 1940 that shows there was the little tiny Catholic cathedral, the old cathedral is what they call it here. And then there was the old courthouse where the Dred Scott decision, those two buildings were all that was left out of what had been the core and heart of St. Louis. And that was to make way for the Gateway Arch. Okay, so that was the 30s, then 40s, everything. By that time, everything was torn down. 1948, it was finally decided, okay, we need to come up with a plan for some kind of monument or some kind of symbol to use for this new park that's going to take place in St. Louis. So this was 1948. Um, so a lot of time with just a bunch of empty land. And, uh, but then again, St. Louis being what it was, they had trouble getting funding once they decided on this. And um, so they had to put together some options. What they ended up doing about 75% of it, uh, because it was going to be considered part of a national park, 75% of the money came from the federal government and the other 25% came from St. Louis. And the total project was going to be $13 million. So there ended up, they put out a call around the world. There were about 172 submissions of plans. Um, it's just all kinds of designs from what I understand. Some were like tall rectangles. Others were animal statues, um, statues like of Lewis and Clark. But there was this one that was this Cantonary Arch. And um, this was developed, the idea was developed by, he was born in Finland, but he was trained in America. His name was Eero Saarinen. And he came up with this idea of a 630 foot tall arch made out of stainless steel. You have to remember this was mid-century, mid-20th century. So it was more minimalist, not so much ornamentation, but very minimalist, very clean lines. So it stood, once it would be built, it would be 630 feet tall and 630 feet between the two legs, um, the north and south legs. His selection, his, his contribution submission was chosen. Yes, his design was selected, but not without a few hiccups and a few slip-ups. Jim and I talk about exactly what happened. It's a very lively story. Luther Ely Smith, uh, he went to work and started talking about some kind of competition bringing the best minds in the country. Absolutely amazing. Uh, and the best architects, artists, whatever, for a competition. And in 47, they got 172. And one of them was 
this was the gateway arch. Uh, well, it was, wasn't exactly the way it was finished, but it was, you could see the idea. And of course, this was the first round, it would be cut down to five, and Eero Saarinen, who was the designer, uh, they, did, he, they meant to honor him, but uh, for some reason, his dad, who was more well-known at the time, got a letter saying, you're one of the five finalists. And so they went out and they celebrated, uh, and then somebody very embarrassingly said, oh, I'm sorry, called and said, it's your son, Errol. And then they went out and had more <laughs> celebrating. <laughs> Well, so, I, I guess that was something to celebrate. But now, had the father entered, or was he just he just he got did. his his father was Elio Sarden, who came over from Finland. Was uh, he was very well known as an art as a great one, and not as much as as Errol, who went on to be one of the greatest uh, architects of the 20th century. For some reason, as somebody. Since Arrow hadn't yet broken out, somebody must have thought it was Elio. And Elio had a, had a pretty good uh, plan, too. It's not the same. I talked to a guy who was in his 90s. He, had, he was just at Washington University in the architectural field. And he, they said, you want to spend a couple of days uh, helping out here? And he was just opening up boxes of uh, proposals, you know, which you could just put on an easel. And... He said he opened it up and he looked at it. And he said, that's the one, even though he was a humble uh, architectural student. Uh, and so uh, because it was so sweeping, it was it was so cutting edge. The, the second round, they they met this committee met. They had a preliminary vote just to see who, you know, they thought that there would be a lot of debate and everybody voted for uh, Errol Saarinen and they went home. Sarnin worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, you know, just to fine tune this thing. He got it up to 1961 and he was looking for it to start. And then he died of a, of a, of, of a brain tumor. He never saw it. It was very sad and very disappointing that Mr. Saarinen died before the completion of the arch, but there were many people that were willing to pick up the torch and keep it going just as he had designed it. Valerie shares with us how the construction started and the process of getting the Gateway Arch built. Construction finally began in February of 1963. So this, this area had sat empty and blank for a very long time by this point. So construction started in 63 and it was finished. The last little section was placed in the top in October of 1965. Mm -hmm. um, and then once it was built, it was another couple of years until the little tiny capsule elevators. There's one that goes up one leg and one goes up to the other to meet up the observation towers. They didn't come until 1967 and 68. It's, um, it's a pretty amazing building, you know, a monument. Um, it is built to withstand earthquakes. It has lightning rods on top. It has been struck apparently many times by lightning. I've seen some pretty interesting photos of, of major storms. I, I didn't know if it was actually photoshopped or maybe a photographer did happen to catch, but it looks like the bolt of lightning is actually hitting the top of the arch. Anyway, it's uh, it does sway. 
if if it's a really really windy day like 50 miles an hour it was built to sway up to 18 inches back or forth a modern marvel um, it was set in concrete several hundred feet down below the ground surface um, so it's it's probably not going anywhere for a long time the gateway arch it is spectacular it is a marvel it is all of those things that we can call it but who were the men that built it what are their stories? I had a chance to talk with Carol Allison, a welder who lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, but came over to St. Louis to work on the arch. Here's his story. Okay, I was an ironworker welder. To start off, I went up there in uh, April of 63, and uh, they had just set the first section down, and they had been trying to get uh, uh, it welded and x-rayed and all the wells passed and so forth. Problem is, uh, there wasn't a lot of qualified welders in this area for that particular type of welding rod. All the ironworkers down here were certified, you know, a big part of them were, and I think there was 12 or 13 at least of us that went up there uh, in, in the preliminary stages because we were all certified on that particular welding rod. Nothing against the St. Louis ironworkers, they just wasn't familiar with it. There's welding rods that, you know, like you use on the pipeline and uh, you use in general purpose. But this was a higher strength welding rod. It's called a low hydrogen. So it would it just welded different. The other rod, you oscillate it more or less when you're welding. And this one, this one you just keep it pretty steady and keep a, you don't take it out of the puddle because it would, if you done that, then you get slag uh, actually in the weld. And, of course, then it wouldn't pass an x-ray. And all those heavy corners, uh, every one of the arch has got heavy corners in it. So the side walls, now I'm talking about on the interior part. You know, the, ma the main strength of the arch is the interior part uh, because that's where the heavy metal is that, that holds it together. That uh, quarter-inch stainless does not support the arch. It helps, obviously, because it's a sandwich wall. What They poured concrete in the sandwich walls up to the 300-foot level. Of course, they had engineering problems. When we first started, they, <clears throat> they had stop and lay us off for a while until they got certain things worked out. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what they were working on. A lot of it, the engineering and this and that. But, uh, they'd done it two or three different times. In fact, at one point, I came back and uh, went to Dallas and was working down there on a 52-story bank building because they had the arch shut down. Well, when they opened it back up, I decided I'd go back up, and, and I did. But it's, uh, I was 20 when we went up. Yeah, and a lot of people asked me, said, well, why did you work on that thing? And I'll say this, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of guys that came out there after it was started and was going up, they would come out there, but they wouldn't stay. They, they, didn't, they didn't like it. <laughs> uh, and the higher it got, it got just a little bit spookier, I guess you could say, because... Uh, up to the 530-foot level, arch was self-supporting. In other words, it's just almost like a big fishing pole as it come together. At 530, they put a strut in there to stabilize it as they went on up and finished it for the last 100 feet. At most, five welders on each side. Now, this, this is at most. A lot of times, there were just four of us. And, of course, you had the foreman, and then you had the radio guy. And that was about it. And they started off, they had a, a rigging crew that would jump the derricks and so forth. And we just wait till they got that done. But then 
as time went on, uh, I mean, we were iron workers also. We actually took over the, the jumping of the derricks and the leveling of the platform and the whole bit. So, like I said, it, it wasn't a big crew on each leg. You had a crew at the shop. There was a shop over it where they assembled it, you know. And then the, the rigging crew on the ground that brought it down to, you know, hook on and bring it up. Boilermakers actually fabricated the sides up in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And then they shipped the, the sides down there, and then they assembled the three sides together on site. Well, I, I left out a few. There were three guys who worked on the outside on that stainless crew, stainless. So that was that, that, that was the amount of people. that just wasn't room for anybody else. That's one thing I would tell everybody is when they had asked me, well, why did you work? How did, how, why? I said, because I was hungry. Because, <laughs> <laughs> so, again, I had came, you know, and had just gotten married, had a child on the way. You know, and I needed to work somewhere. When we was, when we was offered that job, me and my brother-in-law went up there together. And uh, of all things, the business agent at that time, he said, well, he said they're building something in the park. And he couldn't tell us exactly what it was or where it was at. So he gave us our work orders. So we take off and, and we're looking for some park. Well, I think it was Jefferson Park. There's another, it's not, I mean, this is Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, of course, where the arch is. But there was another place called, I guess it was Forest Park, uh, if I remember right. But we went there looking for, for this job, you know, and <laughs> found some guys had to, had some barricades up working on the street. And we stopped and asked them, and they said, well, they're building something down on the river. And they call it a silo. Uh, a lot of people just call it a silo, some kind of silo. They, could, they couldn't even describe it. And, of course, that was right in the, a, a bad area of St. Louis at that time. There was a lot of, you know, the older buildings and, and uh, so forth. And then I know as we was working on, on the legs of the arches, it was going up out there on the, the north end of it. You could see, you know, actually the, the homeless people. They had uh, tall sage grass out there, but they had cardboard houses and stuff, you know, in that area. Totally different from what it is now, obviously. But they uh, would accidentally have a fire in some of those buildings, you know, fairly regular. As you can see, precise measurements were very important. Measuring the north and the south sides had to be done perfectly. I asked Carol if he would share with us exactly how those measurements were done to ensure that at the end, Everything would meet as it should. Yeah, they they would shoot the elevation and, and the lineup of that thing at two o'clock every morning. The engineers would, uh, you know, when you set a piece, you know, they they set it, and uh, you you know, it sometimes you might adjust it just a little bit, but uh, they had it pretty well figured out. As long as it fit together and so forth, it was going to come out right, and it did. When we got to the top. You know, it was the space, I'll say, I guess, maybe it was about, no, maybe two or three foot across. You could step from one to the other. Big jacks, big, uh, uh, had two 400-ton jacks up there that jacked that thing apart and put in that last section. So you had to do that. And, and the elevation with the sun on the south leg they would cause it to bend down, and the north leg would stand up. The elevation would be different 
So that morning, that morning we said it on October 28th and 65, set the last section, they had the fire department out there pouring water down the back of the south leg oh, to wow. make sure that the sun didn't get on it, <laughs> expand it, and, and push it down, you know. Now, as someone who doesn't like heights and is not really comfortable being really high up, Carol Sturridge gave me chills, actually gave me goosebumps. So I wanted to know if there were ever any scary moments that he encountered. Was he ever scared? I'd say the best thing or scariest thing, you could, before they put that strut in the middle to hold it apart at the 530-foot level, that thing, like I say, would just lean it out. And you could lay on the back of that thing and look way back over there behind you, and that's, that's, that was holding you up. And you just, and of course, when the, the big derricks, you know, the derricks curl right up the back of that section, the, the lifting apparatus, but uh, every time they would, you know, like boom out or stop the headache ball real quick, you know, it would actually shake the arch just like a big fishing pole. It, at points, you'd have to quit welding. I mean, sometimes, but as, as a rule, it wasn't that bad. You know, it just, uh, but it, it's an uncomfortable feeling at, uh, at the time. This work was all outdoors. There was no indoor work here. So I asked Carol to tell us, what was it like working in the weather? There had to have been winds, rain, coldness, and heat. I was curious to know, what was it like? The weather itself, we got caught up there one time. I think it was uh, a windstorm coming in, and oh boy, that was the foreman I was working for. Billy Richardson with his name, he had worked out in Wyoming a lot and so forth, and he said, you know, this wind was coming in, it was cold and it was warm, and it cold and it was warm. He said, boys, this is going to be bad. Everybody else got down, me and him and, and one more guy, Vito Comparado, we, we stayed up there and was trying to secure some of that stuff. It hit The wind hit 83 mile an hour on the ground, you know, so you can imagine what it was up there. Anyway, they... Uh, Actually, it stopped the welding at one point of the work because uh, they said it was too cold to weld, some people think. But we just told them we, we were going to either have to work or we're going to have to leave and, you know, go somewhere else. Yeah, so they actually got preheaters up there, big, big propane torches is what they were. But we would heat those, uh, you know, like them heavy corners, uh, heat them up before we ever start welding. And then, of course, you start welding, well, down too much it, it took it took some bad weather before they would ever knock us off before we didn't miss too awful many days considering and we worked up there in some cold weather <laughs> the weather high altitudes and the insurance company calculating that there would be injuries lots of injuries and even calculating that there would be 13 deaths so i asked carol what about injuries did you suffer any injuries while you were there crawled up inside that sandwich wall and was welding these turnbuckles up there and then turning them out to push that skin, that stainless skin out so it take a wrinkle out of it. So you know, while I was up there, uh, a welder went across the top. They was welding stainless up there, tacking it back in place. And a big guy, of course, said, I've got my arms up over my head. Got, got just a sock hood on, they call it, because there's no room for a regular welding hood. <clears throat> So I got my arms up in the air, and of course I had on a welding jacket, but it was, you know, by raising your arms up, you lift the jacket up at the waist. So a big gob of that weld, as they went across, fell down and, and tore my pants, <laughs> right mm -hmm. side. So I, of course, um, 
meeting, and he tried to was trying to get out of there. Got out just as he did. The general foreman, he was out just outside. He was supposedly my watchman, I guess. But he started patting my side. Of course, I told him to get away from me because he just hitting it into me. I had a, a fairly new pair of Levi's, and you know they're pretty tough, and they had the the buttons, and I ripped them, <laughs> them buttons off them Levi. Get my get my pants off that, and it dropped down in my boot, and I kicked my boot off. So here I am jumping around on one leg <laughs> with my pants unbuttoned. <laughs> but anyway, I got the first, second, third degree burns out. Didn't like lost time accidents, so I went out. I still worked. Uh, they would uh, take me every day or two to the infirmary, I guess, or uh, doctor's office, maybe the hospital. I can't remember exactly where I went to, but they'd treat that burn. So I wore a big patch on my side, and and they gave me pain pills and. Uh, worked out pretty good. The day in and day out work of welding the monument would eventually come to an end. So I asked Carol, what was it like? Was he a part of that? Putting that last piece into the gateway arch. I, did, I actually, you know, welded the last section in there, corners, and then I, I welded my corner out. And then probably some of the other, because uh, we welded her up. They had x-rayed that night, and it got good. Carol was there from start to finish, but now it's time for all of the machinery that helped build the arch to come down. And this is when Ted Lefty Ambirowitz comes into the story. And I asked him to tell us a little bit about his experience with the arch. Because of my age, I did not get to the arch until it was completed. And when you say completed, the it was all together what I was asked to go down and work on the arch. So you go, what in the heck is he talking? Well, just because it was completed didn't mean everything was completed. All of the cranes, both the cranes, had to come back down to the arch. Work was very prevalent. And the contractors, and they were the big major contractors in the United States had very large projects going on. Uh, Bethlehem Steel, United States Steel, Pittsburgh, Des Moines, PDM on the arch, um, that were requiring some pretty skilled workers. The arch was always nine hours a day. So and when you were working for the nine hours, you were getting 10 hours pay. That was in 1966 I was on the arch. Now, the, the completion of the arch happened in October of 1965. So to put the time frame together, I filled in, uh, and me and another fellow filled in the crew to bring to help bring the south derrick down to the ground, the platform, the derrick, and take the track off the back side of the arch that was bolted through the arch. So that's how the track... Uh, was able to hold, uh, it looked like it was part of the arch, but it wasn't, it was bolted through the arch. When when I went down there, I was 20 years old. I had only been in the ironworkers less than two years. So when they sent me down there, should they have? Mm. Possibly not. Uh, I just happened to be at the union hall when they called for two men and my partner and I, partner, my buddy and I stood up and because basically nobody that were at the hall at the time wanted to go down in the arch because it was 
it was always a precarious job. We, I was part of the crew that helped bring the crane down to the ground, which we did. We, we ended up bringing it totally down to the ground. In that period of time, like I said, I, I was probably, no, no, not even probably, I was the weakest link in that chain of seven men because I didn't have any experience. My experience was uh, uh, stand over there, kid. Hold, hold, hold that, kid. Watch out, kid. Don't, don't stand there, kid. Oh my goodness, kid. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Hold it tight. Hold it tight. It was, it was like I was on the job training all the time. Mm-hmm. Men down there treated me very well. Sure, we were safe. That job was. To say the least, Anita, a very, very dangerous job. They told us that those platforms with the derrick on them, not counting a piece, a section that they were raising up, weighed 100 tons. Why there's such boogaboo about the arch as it was being erected? Nothing like that had ever been attempted anywhere in the world. And they knew when they were putting this together. And, and remember all of the cable that was involved uh, that was part of the weight on the, of, of the platform. All of that was taken in, uh, in account because the work sheds were there, uh, the porta potties were there, all of the equipment that was needed, plus the weight of those derricks. Those, those were very, very, very heavy because of the loads they had to pick. Jim shares a story about the men who helped with the derricks, who moved them up and down, and the whole process behind it. A pretty fascinating story. Here's what Jim shared with me. There was a there was a fellow by the name of Bill Quigley. He would stay in a little shack on the bottom of the arch grounds, and he would uh, move the der- the derrick that would pick up the little pieces of the arch, bring it to the top. But he did not see what he was doing. There was a fellow, a friend of his, who was watching this by the name of Vito Camparato, who was on the arch, and he was giving orders. He would say, go up, 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 stop, stop, over to the right, over to the right, and then uh, go up. And so he's uh, directing this guy who had the the fate of tons and tons of, of steel, uh, just and who can't see it. He says, go up, and then he would bring it into place. And that's what he did with the final piece. I was really fascinated by the Bill Quigley story, so I asked Lefty to tell me a little bit about some of the other men that he worked with or that he heard about when he arrived at the Arch to bring down the derricks. Considering that the pieces were made, I think, on the outskirts of Pittsburgh, they were, they were railroaded down on flat cars down to St. Louis and stopped there at the riverfront. Yeah, but there's a railroad that runs, still today, runs underneath there where the arch is at. That part was always open because there was a separate crane with a crew of men. The, there were two men working in those crews that had actually worked on the Golden Gate Bridge. I found, and, it, and for some reason, that got lost even in the Ironworker local, the local 396 uh, documentation. Their names don't, don't they appear from working down there, but 
but they don't appear as working also on the Golden Gate Bridge. And I know for a fact they did. I spoke to both of them many times about it. I thought that was quite a feat. But one man's name was Jim, every, he'd like to be called Jimmy, Jimmy Lyons, L-O-Y-N-S, and the other was Glenn Atkinson. His nickname was the Swede. Everybody called him Swede. Both of them probably didn't stand five foot five, slight built. I, if you, you would think that everybody would be the size of uh, Muhammad Ali. No. No, really, the, the, the fellows that really got around well were slightly built guys. They're good hour workers, but uh, anyway, those were the two men that worked on the uh, Golden Gate and the Arch. I was really fascinated to hear Lefty's stories about all of the different men that he worked with, the various positions that they worked, the young and the old. Here Lefty tells a little bit more about some of the different men that worked on the Arch that he met as he was bringing down those derricks. One's name was Bill Quigley. Bill worked the north leg, and a fellow named Luther Fritz worked the south leg. And I'll bet Bill Quigley was a young man, and uh, I'll bet Luther Fritz was probably 60, 60, maybe 65 when I was down there. I mean, he was, he was, he was a grizzled, old, older man. And my goodness, and he always wore a little bitty, a little bitty hat that looked like a hat that a, a railroad engineer would wear. You know, the time and he smoked a little Italian cigar called a Perotti. Smoked that all day long. I don't know how he could even stand up and walk because it was the strongest smelling thing I'd ever been around in my life. I'd go down and walk and talk to him in the shed. He in his shed, because we're talking a big shed, because of this big Heisen engineer and these drums are humongous. In that building that he had, and I don't know why they never saved him. The time he was hired until the time he left on that end, it was, a, it was like a, it wasn't a circle, but in a, in the 360-degree area that he had his building in, he started at the one end, and he marked down every date of every piece he picked. He marked down every date, and it was a little bitty thing, you know, a little writing because it's, you didn't make it a great big scroll. Uh-huh. He marked down every oil change that was done on his engines. He marked down every... Uh, time they changed the cable, where the cable came, what company had the, that the cable came from. I mean, it was it was a diary of precisely everything that happened, every piece, every pick. Uh, it was just amazing how that. And when I looked around there, and I I just introduced myself. I am I'm Lefty, and you know, I'm Luther. I'm Luther. And he's doing his work, and I'm looking at all this stuff, and I'm thinking, wow, what a trove of information, and it's lost. Nobody ever, nobody ever, uh, nobody ever took it. And I have talked to other hammerers and said, are you familiar with what Luther had? And they said, oh my gosh, he had a whole diary of everything. Uh-huh. And it's gone. And and so, how things can get lost is what a shame. That should have been part of something that was still down there in the bottom when they show things of the arch down there. That part of the part, just a 
picture of that sort of showing it. Lefty shared with me that there were many opportunities for work, but were there opportunities for everyone? What about the Native Americans, African Americans, people of ethnic backgrounds? Was there work for everyone? Lefty shares a little bit about that. There was only one Indian that I know of that worked, a full blooded Indian that worked on the arts, and he was the first original foreman. I guess you might call him the general foreman from St. Louis. There was a general foreman from the company. Uh, but the St. Louis main foreman was a fellow named Don White, and his nickname was the Big Indian. Now, I did meet him later on. I didn't know him then because I wasn't even ironworking then when that happened. But that was the only full-blooded Indian that I know that was down there. And what about African-Americans working on the arch? Valerie feels the said about that. The lack of inclusion at that time for people of color on the construction teams at that time. And there was a gentleman, he still lives in St. Louis. He is in his 80s now, but his name was Percy Green II. And he and another student, uh, college student, um, they were activists. They wanted to see more equality for all people. And so they, um, uh, Mr. Green, he was involved with a, a group called CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, and also called ACTION, which is Action Committee to Improve Opportunities for Negroes. Those were started. And um, so he has been on the, a mission for, I guess you'd say, the last 50 plus years to try to ensure equality and inclusion of people of all colors, all backgrounds. At the time the arch was built in from 63 to 65, there were no Jewish people and there were no African-Americans included on the work crews. And because of Mr. Green's activism and taking a stand, the AFL-CIO began to take a new look at construction crews and how there was, yes, inequality in how the jobs were given to certain companies, to certain groups of people. Yes, there were issues around equality and labor, but when that last piece was put in, everyone celebrated. Jim tells us all about that day. Oh, it was, there were bands playing and there were speeches by politicians. There was Errol Sarnum's wife uh, came back for the celebration. Uh, it was, uh, people were so excited. And I remember it, it, get, it was such a shot in the arm. You know, it was, it was sort of like, uh, we made it to the moon. Of course, uh, it wasn't that big, but you know, it was something like that. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, there were kids who were able to, everybody who was able to got, went downtown uh, to, to see it. So there was celebration. And also there became interest in businesses thinking about other things that may go in that area as well. Let's hear all about that from Valerie. It was a sense of pride and it was a big celebration. An interesting story that maybe not a lot of, not a lot of people know about is um, Walt Disney, right after the arch was constructed, he was looking for a place to put his second amusement park. 
he had Disney World or Disneyland in California, and he was wanting to do something Disney World. And he looked very seriously at putting it on the riverfront, down near the arch, down on the water. He was not a believer in serving alcoholic beverages in his theme park. And if you're familiar with uh, Anheuser-Busch, you know, that's been a part of the St. Louis landscape since the 1800s. And um, the Bushes are very powerful people. And they said, no way, you're not going to build here unless beer will be served in this park. To which he said, no, I don't think so. I wanted a family atmosphere. And so then he looked other places and ultimately ended up in Orlando. And uh, it's just mind-boggling to think, okay, what if that had happened down on St. Louis's riverfront? What it, what would that have looked like? What, what would it have been like? Because we do get lots of snow. It would seem that, yes, Florida is probably the better place for it. But he and um, Anheuser-Busch kind of bumped heads. And uh, he said, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. And one of the reasons he wanted it here in Missouri to begin with was because he, Walt Disney, was born in a tiny little town called Marceline, Missouri. And so he remembered small town atmosphere. In fact, it's said that um, when you go to Disney World or Disneyland, when you go to the part of the park that's called Main Street, USA, it was designed to look very much like what he remembered his hometown Main Street looking like. And now you know the story of this magnificent monument that stands on the very ground where this city began. Quatermass Travel would like to extend a very special thank you to my guests, Jim Merkel, the author of the book, The Making of an Icon, and the book, Growing Up St. Louis. Valerie Battle-Kinzel, the author of the book, What's With St. Louis and Ready to Wear. Our guests, Carol Allison and Lefty Ibirowitz. To plan a trip to see the arch, Visit the National Park Service's website at nps.gov slash gatewayarch. To help plan a trip to see more of St. Louis and all of the history, visit the website explorestlouis.com. And for more information on the Missouri Quarter and other quarters that are part of the U.S. Mint's Commemorative Quarter Series, visit the website usmint.gov. And one final word from Lefty that captures the pride and feelings of all of those who built the Gateway Arch. Every time I am on the grounds, I will go over and put my hand on it and say thank you. Mm. That's, that's God's truth. And, and is, is, it, um, is it anything special to anybody else? I, I don't care. It is to me. But that's how I feel about it. And I'm sure that the other fellows feel the same way. Thank you for joining me today and make sure and subscribe so that you get updates on upcoming quarters that will be covered here on Quarter Miles Travel. Remember, all you have to do is reach into your pocket, pull out that quarter, and Quarter Miles will take it from there. We'll turn that quarter into an adventure. Today's episode of Quarter Miles Travel is brought to you by Allianz Travel Insurance, your one-stop for all of your travel insurance needs, from trip cancellations and interruptions to travel delays, emergency medical care, and emergency transportation. They cover it all. Visit their website at AllianzTravelInsurance.com.